Ephesians chapter 4 for this morning. As we begin, I want to tell you the story of Jack and Grace. Jack and Grace met through a mutual friend, and from day one they seemed to be the perfect match. Grace was everything that Jack had always wanted. She was beautiful, outgoing, and caring, always there when Jack needed her. And for the first five months, they were inseparable. Jack could hardly think of anything but Grace. He didn't need to look further. He told his friends, she's the one. But now almost three years have passed. Jack still enjoys the comfort and familiarity of being with Grace, but the spark is gone. Grace's flaws seem more obvious. He's not sure he finds her as attractive as he once did. And he's beginning to resent all the time she wants him to spend with her. One night when she asks if they can define the nature of their relationship, Jack blows up. We're together, aren't we? Why isn't that enough for you? Obviously, Jack isn't ready for commitment, and it's unclear if he ever will be. Have you been in a relationship like this? I believe God has something better for you than this. He wants you to have a relationship defined by both passion and commitment. But before you can take hold of this wonderful plan, you need to know something about this couple. There are millions of Jacks walking around today, and Grace isn't a girl. She's a church. So begins Joshua Harris's book, Stop Dating the Church. What's the relationship that you have with a local church? What is the nature of the relationship you have with God's people? That's the, the whole point of the book that Harris wrote. It's an excellent book, by the way. But more importantly, that I think is also a question that lies behind our passage that we want to look at this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. We've come to the end of this short series of sermons on gospel growth. And so far we have seen how God desires to build His church, not so much through programs, not so much through events, but through the proclamation of His Word, specifically the gospel itself. We've seen that this happens as we speak God's words prayerfully to those outside the church through evangelism, that they might come to faith in Christ and be a part of God's church. And we saw that this happens as we prayerfully speak God's words to those inside the church through encouragement that they might continue and deepen in their faith in Christ. And today I want us to return to Ephesians chapter 4 and see why God intends for everyone, for every Christian called to faith in His Son, why He wants every believer to be a part of this gospel growth process and what that will look like. In other words, this morning we want to define for you in biblical terms what the nature of your relationship to God's church should be. So follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, that is the earth. Who has descended is the one who also ascended for above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attained the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading of his word. In previous weeks, we have seen that we are to evangelize for gospel growth, we are to encourage for gospel growth, and now we want to see that God has equipped us for gospel growth. That is to say, he intends to equip us, to give us what we need so that we can be a part of growing his people, extending his kingdom. But frankly, we can resist that equipping. Like the fruitcake nobody wants at Christmas, we can look to God and say, no thanks, I don't want this gift of your grace. I would rather let somebody else do that. I would rather just sit back and enjoy whatever else is going on. And this morning, I want you to know that that's, that that's not what God intends for your life. And I want you to see not only how you can be equipped to serve the growth of God's people, but also why you should be equipped for that service. And so we want to see three things this morning, three encouragements to you to be equipped for gospel growth. First of all, be equipped by remembering Christ's calling. Be equipped by remembering Christ's calling. In the opening three chapters in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul lays out the gospel itself. And we talked about this several Wednesday nights ago, if you were here, uh, that Paul's letters naturally divide into two ways. He begins by explaining what God has done for his people. He begins broadly by telling us, this is the gospel. And then about half of the letter, he makes a turn and he, he says, therefore, or because of that, or in light of that. And then he says, this is the implications. In other words, since you have been made right with God, you're already redeemed, you're already loved, you're already accepted by him. You're not working for salvation, but rather having experienced salvation, now it is worked out practically in your life. Changes are to be evident in how you live. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul does that. He lays out the gospel. And now in chapter 4, the transition occurs in light of what God has done in eternity past, in the present, in your life individually and corporately among all of his people. Now, therefore, Paul says, this is how you should live. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, we've been saved by God's grace. Paul says earlier in the letter, it is not the result of works lest anyone should boast. Nevertheless, he also says we have been called, we have been saved to good works which God has prepared beforehand. In other words, saved by grace, live out not only in the strength of that grace, because of that grace, but we live a life of doing works. And not just whatever we want to do, but specifically the works that God have, has called us to do. In this context, Paul has been talking in chapter 3 about the people of God collectively, that Christ has died for, that he has brought together by the cross. 
And he is trying to advance the argument that it is not just uh, individual, uh, uh, one individual people group that God has saved, but rather he has saved people from all kinds of people groups, bringing them together as one new humanity, not Jew or Gentile, not slave or free, not Greek or anything else, but Christian. So in the past, though, God dealt with the world through one people group, Israel, with a kind of come-and-see approach. I'm dwelling here. I'm working here. You come and be a part of it. Now he deals with the whole world with a go-and-tell approach. The gospel goes out from Jerusalem, from the center of God's workings, into all people groups and replicates and multiplies. So that instead of coming to, it's going out to. And Paul is saying that what that means is that you have all these different people groups coming together and yet they are all one in Christ. And so Paul says part of living worthy of your calling means being eager, verses 2 and 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In other words, you acknowledge there's differences. There's going to be differences. Have you ever gone to a multi-ethnic, multinational event? There are differences, even in how you greet. you got some people, hey, how's it going there? Boom, you know, big handshake, slap on the back. How's it going, friend? And immediately you're called by the first name and everything else. And then my Korean friends from seminary, it was, you know, it was much more timid and it was, you know, joyous, but a little bow and, you know, and everything else. And uh, even that differences. And yet Paul says, look, we are meant to be coming together as one people. Why? Because though there are individual believers, there are distinctive little churches, local fellowships, it's all one body. Isn't that what he says? Verses four through six, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You can't really escape it, can you? There is one people of God. Now these verses have, frankly, large implications for how we think about church, not just church globally, but even here locally in this body called Crossway Christian Church. We acknowledge that we're not just saved as an individual and we just happen to come and hear preaching every once in a while or or benefit from somebody else's good cooking at membership lunches, okay? There is a larger picture in view. And if we grasp that, if we understand that, that will affect how we live our lives. For, for example, Brian Chapel is the president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. In his commentary on the book of Ephesians, he talks about uh, several years ago taking a trip to Korea. And there he met with Korean Christians. And among the many things they talked about with them was the fact that during the Cold War, their parents taught them to hate the North Koreans, and to, and, to, and to see them as devils. Such was the, the strong cultural divide between this, this free nation and this communist country that the South Koreans said, just think of the, your northern brothers as devils. Hate them, don't love them, don't like them. And yet there was now, through the spread of Christianity, a crumbling of those old hatreds. In fact, not just having a neutral view of them, there was now love for them. Chapel met one South Korean Christian who used his vacation time every year to take illegal trips into China, traveling with Bibles and food supplies 
that it would hand off to Chinese Christians who were able to make it into North Korea and give them to North Korean Christians there. Christians who were starving both physically and spiritually. Now understand, this South Korean man, he had never met those people in North Korea. It was illegal for him to go in there. In fact, it was easier to go into illegal China than it was to illegal North Korea. And so this triangle of love was designed. And again, though he did not know them, he did not know their names, he understood there is one body. There is one faith. There is one God and Father over all through one Christ Jesus himself. He saw these people as being his brothers and sisters, more needy than him or those around them. And so he risked his life. He sacrificially gave because he understood the implications of the calling of Christ on his life, calling them not just out of sin, but into a larger body, namely the church. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to give ourselves over to God, if we're going to be equipped to serve him, not only in this church, but if God would so desire then to all the nations, then we have to begin to allow ourselves to think in this way. We have to be motivated by remembering that God has called us, not just out of darkness into light, he has called us into his people, into the church. Now the question is, what is our role among that people? How do we fit into the church? How do we actually go about serving, about being equipped? Well, this leads to the the second encouragement, and that is this. Be equipped to use Christ's gifts. Be equipped to use Christ's gifts. Paul says there is one body of Christ, and yet God also works among his body with individual believers. Listen to what he says. Again, there is one body and one spirit, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things that he might fill all things. Paul says beyond the grace that God gives for salvation, he also gives more grace as a gift from Christ. And Paul quotes from, he draws in the language of Psalm 68, which speaks of God's victory over Israel's enemies to show the ultimate victory of God through Christ. And he says, after Christ's descent to the earth in the incarnation and after his death on the cross, he ascended back to the right hand of God after the triumph of the resurrection, in order to give gifts to his people. But Paul says, though there is one body, there are many different gifts. What kind of grace gifts did Christ give? Well, he certainly does not give an exhaustive list here, but Paul gives some examples. He says, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but do you notice the commonality in this list? What do the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, what do they all do? They all proclaim the word of God. They all share the word of God. They all bring the word of God to bear on God's people and on those who are being called to become God's people. They all share the word of Christ in different ways, but it's all with the same purpose. And Paul tells us that in verse 11. He gave gifts to men. What did he give? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up 
of the body of Christ. Now here is where many Christians encounter a big problem. Because if this verse is understood rightly, it completely destroys their understanding of how the church is supposed to work. And part of this comes, uh, frankly, because of a, an infamous comma or lack thereof. Some translations have a comma after the word saints in verse 12, so it looks like the leaders being mentioned here are meant to do three things. Equip the saints, number one. Do the work of ministry, number two. And three, build up the body. The problem is the way that Paul uses the grammar here, it's, it's otherwise. It is not that the leaders are doing three different things. It's that the leaders are given to do one thing, equip the saints for ministry, and what results is the building up of the body of Christ. So do you understand what Paul is saying here? And, and just let's be clear, let's not get caught up on the word saint. Okay? Um, Paul has no category. The New Testament has no category for some kind of super-elevated Christian who has attained sainthood by doing uh, miraculous things or by living a holy life. Paul says every Christian is a saint. So if you've looked to Christ and said, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, I cannot save myself, I cannot make myself right with God, but I trust Christ will do that for me. He died in my place. He bore God's wrath for me. And when I trust Him, God takes His righteousness and counts it as on my own, so that way I am right with Him. If you have done that, then Bible says you're a saint. Not in the sense, again, that you're super holy. Saint just comes from the word for holiness. That means you are called out from the word Uh, world for God's holy purposes. So again, it's not that the leaders are, are, are equipping a certain group of Christians. They're equipping all of God's people. They are equipping them for the work of ministry. What does this mean? It means profoundly this. You can't look to Pastor Joe or to Pastor Richard or to myself and say, they are the ministers, they do the work of ministry and I benefit. That's not what Paul says, is it? He says, they have been given a specific task of fanning the flame of the gift of God's grace in in the life of every believer, even one another, so that you will be equipped in such a way that you do the work of ministry. Do you see that? We are to be partners together in the building up of the body of Christ. All of God's people have been given gifts of His grace and they are to be equipped, encouraged by the Word of God proclaimed so that they could be engaged ministering to one another. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means there is a, if we understand that rightly, there is a far heavier weight, frankly, on the pastors of this church than otherwise. Time-wise, there's a bigger weight if we're doing everything. But spiritually speaking, there is a greater weight if we are not just feeding you information, if we're not just, you know, spooning it in as it were, but if we're seeking to invest in your life through the word saying we are seeking to build you up and equip you for ministry. And therefore you need to pray for us and we would be prepared to do that. But you must also pray and ask God to open your own heart to make sure that you are ready to receive this equipping that he desires to give. There's an obligation on your part to say, I want to learn. I want to imitate the leaders that God has given me as they imitate Christ. I want to be equipped to do the work of the ministry of the church that God has called me to. None of us, I think, if we were given a very valuable gift at Christmas, would keep it in the box, would we? 
I mean, a couple years ago, uh, Melinda's parents got us a very unexpected gift in the form of a Wii. And let me tell you, it was not long we were home. That was out of the box, and we were playing Mario Tennis or whatever it was. Okay, We were enjoying and using the gift that was given to us. How much more the gift of God? The gift of Christ himself. He has, he has given you a gift of his grace. Are you going to keep it in a box on your shelf and look at it and admire it and say, isn't that lovely? Are you actually going to take the thing out and allow yourself to be equipped to use that gift and build up his church and extend his kingdom? That's what Paul is calling us to. Therefore, we need to understand what this, what this looks like. And this is the third thing. Be equipped to mature Christ people. Be equipped to mature Christ people. We should be encouraged by remembering this is the task that he has called us to, that there is a larger church that is in need, that we are to be a part of that need, and now this is the intent, the purpose, the maturity of Christ's people. Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here because we talked about this a lot last week, but we simply need to make the point, and that is this, God is growing us, God is maturing us, He is building us up in the image of Christ Himself. The fullness of the godly frame of God's Son is the pattern for our growth. It is into His image, both individually and collectively, that we are being shaped. Paul says, as we grow together by the Word of God, we will be equipped to encourage one another, as well as reach the lost. Why? Verse 14, because we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is a a calling that we all have to work for the maturity of the body. Understand, don't get, again, don't get caught up on the on the churchiness of the words that we like to throw around like calling. The other day I was listening to another Christian talk and he was talking about uh from um 1 Timothy chapter 2 about praying uh for for government officials and praying for different individuals and he said we should be praying even for people like Muslim terrorists who mean us harm. And I heard, someone, I heard somebody say, uh, nope, uh, that's not me, that's not my calling. And I thought, it's not your calling? It's not your calling to pray for your enemies? I'm pretty sure that's what Christ said, didn't he? Well, here's the thing. All of us, whether we think about it or not, all of us are called to be a part of this ministry. Yes, I know this is distracting. Just give me a minute here. That's why it's supposed to be under the sweater. All of us have this calling to be a part of the building up of God's people. I, I hope that we would have seen that. So we don't, we don't have the option of hitting the eject button and say, well, that's not my calling. I, I, I'm not supposed to be building up the body. I'm not supposed to be speaking God's word prayerfully to lost people and to encourage people in the church. That's so-and-so's calling. That's not mine. I'm called to do something else. Well, what do you think your calling is? I mean, ultimately, yeah, there's a couple of little things that we do around the church that, that, that are necessary, but that's not so much calling as just filling in the gaps and getting things done. 
there is a clear, distinct calling for you to be filled up with the Word of God and to be putting it back out there either to evangelize the lost or to encourage God's people. Now, what is this going to look like at Crossway? Normally, we interweave the application with the exposition and we take the whole time, but, but you know, as the elders talk, we really want you to be clear. Now, this is not just some flash-in-the-pan series. I want to say this is a good idea, it sounds nice, and hopefully some, someday it will be a reality at the church. We don't want you to walk away from these four weeks thinking that. We, we want you to understand this is what we want Crossway Christian to be about in the coming years. This pattern of gospel growth should be synonymous with who we are as a church. Not that we haven't been doing it before, but in a very clear and focused way so that all of what we do is permeated with this aim of prayerfully speaking God's words to one another and to those outside of us. What will that look like each week, each month, each year? How do we practically put this into practice? Well, let me suggest three things that you need to do in order to be ready for this to happen. First of all, we need to begin with prayer. We need to begin with prayer. The truth is, anytime we find ourselves encouraged towards godliness, our sinful hearts rise up and fight against us. You will find in the coming weeks and months a hundred excuses for not being involved. I work too much. I have kids. I have too many extracurricular activities. I'm not trained for this. I've never done this before. All kinds of things. And they will seem like legitimate excuses to you, but they're not. Okay? It may not mean that you, that you are involved 40 hours a week doing uh, gospel growth work, and we understand that. But there's never an excuse whereby it becomes zero involvement. And frankly, if we're really honest, our real excuses would be things like this. I'm afraid. I'm fearful about this. I'm afraid to open up with people. I'm afraid to share my faith. I'm afraid to let other people in my life because I know they will see that I am not all that I should be and that I have been putting on a false mask of bravado when it comes to my spirituality and really I'm slow and saggy and hurting when it comes to my walk with God. That's okay because frankly all of us are that way. All of us are that way. And this is why we need to begin with prayer. We need to begin by calling out to God, asking him not to let us go, to grab us by his grace, to keep us close and encouraged to be a part of what he is doing to grow his church. We must pray that we will stay connected to to him with the simple disciplines of prayer and reading the word, asking that we would find joy in those things. Because when we have joy in knowing God better, when we more deeply delight in Him, then we will find ourselves loving the world and sin less. And it will be not a a checklist, not a drudgery to be involved in gospel growth. It will be our heart's desire. So we begin with prayer, but secondly, we recognize that change is coming. Now, I know we don't like change. I mean, let's just be honest. Most of us don't like change. In fact, now, I say this jokingly, there's not anything inherently wrong with it, but it just shows that we are creatures of habit and we like change. There have been times when I've, I've set aside time to pray for you as a church, and I've realized I forgot my member list that I normally keep with me. So do you know how I remember each and every one of you? I close my eyes and I say, okay, these guys normally sit over here. And then on that side of the, of the pew, they, or row, they sit there. Then back here, here's where they normally sit. Here's where they normally sit. The only people that mess me up, usually as Pastor Richard and Denise, because they've not yet learned that you sit in one place, that you have your designated chair and you don't move. Okay? Actually, that's, that, that's good on them. That, not bad. We're creatures of habit, and yet, 
um, we, we need to break out of that habit. And for no other reason than this, as God's people, there's an element of our life that should be consumed with a desire for change. We should be constantly reading this book and saying, okay, what is this saying that's not true here? And so time and time again, we're going through this cycle, this continuing cycle of change and renewal in light of our relationship with God. At first, probably there won't be a whole lot of change notes. We're not going to come next week and be like a whole new church. We're like, what in the world happened? No, no, no. It's going to take time and it's going to grow just like a, a seed that's planted eventually shoots forth a little sprout and eventually becomes the plant and the tree. That's, that, it's going to be like that over the next year. Change is going to come and it's going to take place and you have to be ready for it. You have to be willing to accept that people are wanting to be an encouragement to you. That they're not going to be satisfied with trite little, I'll be praying for you. They're going to stop in the hallway and go off to the side and they're going to maybe even open the Bible and read a portion of scripture and then they're going to pray for you in your need. Or they're going to say, can we talk about this more? Let's get together tomorrow for coffee or for a Coke or for lunch so that we can, we can look to God's word and be encouraged about this. And you've got to be willing not only to be on the receiving end of that, but to begin giving it out. To, to, to understand that the mind shift is going to be changed now so that ministry is not just about uh, putting your name on, on, on a list of being involved in doing something. It's going to be the very warp and woof of your life of prayerfully speaking God's words either for evangelism or encouragement. Let me give you an idea about uh, what this might look like. This quote is aimed at pastors, but I think you will get the idea. These two authors say, imagine a reasonably solid Christian said to you after church one Sunday morning, look, I'd like to get more involved around here and make a contribution, but I just feel like there's nothing for me to do. I'm not on the inside. I don't get asked to be on the committees or lead Bible studies. What can I do around here? What would you immediately think or say? Would you start thinking of some event or program off the start that they could help with? Some job they needed doing, some ministry they could join or support? This is how we're used to thinking about the involvement of church members in congregational life in terms of jobs and roles. Usher, Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher, treasurer, elder, musician, song leader, money counter, and so on. The implication of this way of thinking for the congregational members is clear. If all the jobs and roles are taken, there's really nothing left for me to do in this church. I'm reduced to just being a passenger. I'll wait until I'm asked to do something. The implication for the pastoral staff is similar. Getting people involved and active means finding a job for them to do. In fact, the church growth gurus say that giving someone a job to do within the first six months of their joining your church is vital for them to feel like they belong. However, if the real work of God is people work, the prayerful speaking of his word by one person to another, then the jobs are never all taken. The opportunities for Christians to minister personally to others are limitless. So you could pause and reply to your friend. See that guy sitting over there on his own? That's Julie's husband. He's on the fringe of things here. In fact, I'm not really sure whether or not he's crossed the line yet and become a Christian. How about I introduce you to him and you arrange to have breakfast with him once every two weeks and read the Bible together? Or see that couple over there? They're both fairly recently converted and really in need of encouragement and mentoring. Why don't you and your wife have them over, get to know them, and read and pray together once a month? And if you still have time and want to contribute some more, start praying for the people in your street. And then invite them all to a barbecue at your place. That's the first step towards talking with them about the gospel or inviting them along to something. Of course, there's every chance that person will then say, but I don't know how to do those things. I'm not even sure I know what to say or where to start. To which you reply, oh, that's okay. Let's start together and I'll train you. 
that's what we're looking for. That's what we want, frankly, as pastors, three pastors, the, the future of this church to look like. An organic, frankly, chaotic web of relationships whereby people are getting together to do nothing less than pray and read the Bible. Because that's how gospel growth takes place. And you say, I don't know how to do that. That's great. That's fine. Because we will start meeting with you and we will show you how to do that. And not just us right now. We have already taken the initiative to gather together a group of people who are already doing those kinds of things and to formally train them to train you. So now instead of just three guys that can meet with you and help you and encourage you and train you, we're going to have eight people that will be able to meet with you and train you and encourage you. And we will, as time goes on, we will identify those people to you and say, seek them out, but seek us out as well. Understand what we're not saying? We're not saying those other jobs are not important. We're not saying that the work of the usher is not important. We're not saying the job of the Sunday school teacher is important. What we're simply saying is that does not exhaust the ministry of the church. In fact, that's not even the heart of the ministry of the church. Some of those things are are designed as support to make sure that the ministry of people change and people growth take place. The last thing that we want to encourage you with is this. We want you to actually partner with us for gospel growth. I hope that over the last four weeks, but especially the last 30 minutes, you have understood that gospel growth is a task for the entire church, not just a few leaders, not just a few key people. This is about all of us receiving God's grace, being equipped by the word and doing the work of ministry. Therefore, however you encounter the word at this church, whether it's through preaching like this or through your morning Bible study classes or community groups or Wednesday night, we want you not just to think in terms of I'm hearing the Bible. We want you to think in terms of I'm being equipped for ministry right now. They are investing in me that I might go out and invest in others. You know, this, we live in a funny age, don't we? We live in an age where information and, and stories just blast all over the place so fast because of the Internet. Things that, that would have become um, uh, funny stories and folklore and then possibly even categorized as urban myth suddenly now is verifiable and true in an instant. And that happened this week. I was searching for something else and it came up a story from the Daily Mail which is in the United Kingdom, a United Kingdom newspaper about a story that happened at a local hockey game in Virginia. Now figure that out. Only in the 21st century. So what was the story about? Well, it was just before the Norfolk Admirals were going to play the Tampa Bay Lightning that eight-year-old Elizabeth Hughes got up to sing the national anthem. And she's singing it, and she's doing a great job, and she gets about two-thirds of the way through, and the mic just cuts out. And at first she kind of notices like there's something not, I'm not hearing like I was. But she keeps mouthing the words. She keeps singing her heart out. And it's only a few seconds pause when people begin to realize what's happened. And then suddenly everybody in attendance virtually begins singing the national anthem. They rise to the occasion. As it turns out, the story reports, both teams sang the national anthem. So that collectively, not just this little girl who was tasked with singing, but the entire assembled gathering finishes the task of singing the national anthem before the game. Now, frankly, that's, that's not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, it's nice for her. It was a cool thing. As one commentator said, it gives me hope for humanity. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but it was cute. But singing the national anthem isn't that big of a thing. But, you know, God calls us to something else, doesn't he? Make disciples of all nations. 
And when he says that, I feel just like that eight-year-old little girl with a broken mic saying, how in the world am I going to finish this? And the reality is that's not just a cute story. It's a parable for the church, isn't it? Because the task isn't for any one of us to stand up and do it, to make disciples of the world or even disciples of this city, but rather it is all of us collectively stepping up, joining together. That's how the mission will be accomplished. That's how we will fulfill the calling that Christ has put on our lives and on his church. So I pray that in the coming days and the coming weeks as you continue to hear in various ways about this thing called gospel growth and what it will look like, that you will be encouraged, that you will be ready, that you will desire to be equipped so that you yourselves, in obedience to Christ's command of the Apostle Paul, will be equipped for the building up of the body, for the work of ministry. With that in mind, let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word which does instruct us. It not only tells us about Christ and about the way to be made right with you, about the salvation we can have, but God, it tells us how we are to live our lives. And Father, you do encourage us knowing that, Father, we are not engaged in ministry to make you love us more, to make you bless us more. God, you've already told us. Now, even while we were still sinners, you demonstrated your love for us by sending Christ to the cross on our behalf. That, Father, in Christ we already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father, we don't do this to somehow earn favor with you. But, God, because we already have favor with you, because you've already shown us love in Christ, Father, our motivation is to to display our love for you with our obedience. Father, I pray that especially in this area of gospel growth that we will be instructed and encouraged. God, we will not be fearful of how to be involved in ministry, but God, we will see this as the very calling you have put on our lives. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.